and welcome to the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is going to be episode number 20. We're going to talk a little bit about what we've been observing this week and what's been observable this week, as well as what's coming up uh, next uh, next week for Stuff in the Sky to Observe. So how was your week, Shane? It wasn't too bad. I actually got out a couple nights uh, to look at the moon. And then I had, <clears throat> excuse me, a really brief solar session on, I think it was, what day was that? Wednesday, maybe? I think okay. Wednesday. Yeah. All right. How about you? Were you able to get any observing in? Yeah, I got a little, but uh, I'm really curious to hear. We, we texted a little bit, but I'm just interested to hear whether or not, uh, well, it sounded like you, you weren't able to see uh, Venus during inferior conjunction, but I'm just wondering uh, how that went, what you tried, and, and whether or not you had any success at all in trying to see Venus when it was close to the disk of the sun. Right. So yeah, that was my brief solar session Wednesday morning. Um, yeah. Venus was going to be very close to the sun and you, you were interested to find out if, if it would be visible through a hydrogen alpha telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked a little bit about hydrogen alpha telescopes in the past. They're dedicated entirely to observing the sun. They're, it's a safe way to observe the sun but you can't look at anything else with these things because they, they only allow a very narrow wavelength of light to pass through it. And, you know, the benefit is that you see a lot of really cool features on the sun through one of these things. And, uh, yeah, you were curious to find out if I could see Venus. And, yeah. um, so I, I went out, <clears throat> I tried a number of different magnifications and, you know, maybe I should even say before I went out, this is one of the, I should say probably one of the rare times that I use planetarium software before observing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I want to capture an event like this, I like to know exactly what to look for sometimes, mm-hmm. especially like placement of the planet. Mm-hmm. So I went into my planetarium software and uh, got a good idea of where Venus would be at that particular time and then went out to see if I could find it. Yeah. And nothing I was not able to see it. Um, the the sun was kind of cool, but yeah, no Venus, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's like thanks for trying, uh, Bill. We are out in um, uh, Machosan on Vancouver Island uh, as an, an observing uh, pen pal of mine, uh, and he tried as well for me, and also he he had no luck. So I kind of feel good that you guys didn't see it because I really would have felt like I missed out uh, had you seen something. But I kind of feel like between you and Bill, if if uh, if if either one of you, uh, could, if it was observable, I think I think one or the other would have got it. So yeah, it just wasn't uh, wasn't observable. So so that's I, that's too I, bad. Um, you said you had another night out observing. What else were you looking at this week? So I went. <clears throat> excuse me, my uh, my throat is. Not right. Yeah, you reason. and me both. I was saying, I, I think it's like we're having all this, this wind. It's been extremely windy here. Um, not leave the house for days on end kind of windy. And uh, I think it's stirred up a lot of stuff in the air. And like I was saying, it's, <laughs> it's kind of bothered my asthma. And I think even for people without asthma, I think it's, it's bothering them because I don't really have asthma that's all that bad. Right, right. Um, yeah, I was out looking at the moon. Um, I can't remember which nights now. Um, but anyway, it was about, I think it was about a half-phased moon, something like that. Um, no, it would have been, it would have been beyond uh, uh, halfway. Uh, anyway, I was looking at uh, the, one of the major, I guess, kind of 
C's, uh, Sinus Iridum. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, what I was observing was uh, the mountain range, kind of, or the crater edge uh, that surrounds it. So it's known as Montes Jura. And I'm just looking at the other one here. This other one's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, Promontorium Herculides, I think. Um, so I was using my uh, Takahashi 76 and uh, again, varying magnifications. The seeing that night was not too bad. Um, but what I really like on the moon is when you start looking at some of these crater edges or, um, you know, in this case, they really do appear like a mountain range. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if they'd be classified as a mountain range. Um, but, you know, when you see kind of Earth-like features on other bodies in the solar system, uh, like the moon, uh, I just love it. And there's so much detail just in, you know, one little edge of that crater. Um, you know, I can spend hours just looking at it, uh, looking at the shadows, looking at the bright areas, and seeing all sorts of nuances. And then, you know, when you start to expand beyond that, like the moon has got so many topographic features, you know, of ridges and um, kind of ground swells and depressions and it goes on and on. And, oh, I just, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then the second uh, moon night that I had was, I want to say Thursday night. And it was nearly full. Like I think it was a 93% moon. And um, again, just kind of looking along the Terminator, uh, just taking it all in, all sorts of detail. Yeah, I'm just actually I, I looked up um, Montes Jura while you were uh, while you were uh, talking about it there, and yeah, I've observed that before. I'm not as as much of a lunar observer as as some people, but uh, yeah, I kind of recognize that once I once I googled it, I'm like, yeah, I've definitely seen that. I think I think Sinus Aridum is visible naked eye because I've done a lot of uh, naked eye sketching. Uh, of the moon but uh yeah that's really cool how's the 76 working oh fantastic it's uh such a wonderful telescope it you know it's so light um it acclimatizes to the outside temperature not that there's a lot of acclimizing or acclimatizing that it needs to do this time of the year yeah but uh you know it's just so easy to take out you know it's it's on the tripod on the mount all together you know i just lift it with one hand out we go eyepieces uh, or eye, eyepiece case in the other hand yeah. and uh, off we go. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really nice. And I, I did test out those TMB super, mo super monocentric eyepieces. Oh yeah. That was my next question. Like how did you make out with, uh, with those now just to review what, what are these eyepieces exactly? So these were released in 2003 by, uh, um, I guess TMB is kind of known or the manufacturer um, and it, they used a, a Zeiss subcontractor to make these things. Um, and they did it for the super Mars opposition of 2003 or. 04. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, I remember them coming out and the, the big do about them, but uh, I forgot it was, it was for that, that 2003 Mars opposition and, and TMB is uh was uh, Thomas Back's uh, company who he, he unfortunately passed away about uh, uh, I think around 10 or 15 years ago. And he was a famous optical uh, designer down in the States. Yeah. So a monocentric eyepiece refers <laughs> to the design of it, sim similar to like a plossal um, or an orthoscopic. Um, but a, a super mono has three elements that are cemented together and the intent is to have as few air to glass surfaces as possible. So there's only two, there's the top one and the bottom. 
And what that does is it, um, uh, just from reading anyway, it, it reduces the amount of scatter and glare and increases the amount of light transmission through the glass. So the philosophy, I guess, behind it is you get uh, an eyepiece that is, um, you know, extremely good at passing fine details to your eye, or, or maybe what I should say is, is not getting in the way of the view. Um, every eyepiece kind of does get in the way of the view to a certain degree. You know, it'll take away some of the light because nothing transmits 100% of the light. Um, then there's, you know, how the polishing was done, how the coatings were applied, all of that stuff impacts the quality of the eyepiece. Now, these super monos that TMB made, uh, they had three releases. I don't know how many eyepieces were in each release. So I don't want, you know, I better not speculate on that. They're mostly um, small uh, focal length. Think, think it was mostly like uh, threes and fours and fives, although I believe that there was even some longer focal lengths in there, 16 and maybe longer. Yeah, I think they had an 18 yeah. and then like a 12, but the, the main focus was the, the shorter focal lengths for planetary yeah. purposes. They have a very narrow field of view. It's only 30 degrees. Yeah, well, that um, eye lens, like you sent me those photos and it just looks like the head of a pin you're, you're looking through. It, you know, when, when you see that eyepiece, just if you know nothing about the history of them, you would look at that and probably disregard it because it really reminds me of like those old Ramsden and mm. SR eyepieces that weren't very good that came yeah. with your cheaper department store telescopes. Yeah. But I tell you, looking through these was, it, it was shocking how comfortable it was despite such a tiny, you know, little kind of lens hole there. Mm -hmm. And even the tight eye relief, um, it was shocking how comfortable they were. And the seeing wasn't, great um you know it's probably mediocre yeah so not the best test for like a high performing eyepiece like that but they really worked well um and uh you know in in the hobby these eyepieces are pretty hard to find they were made in the early 2000s they're not made anymore the only way to acquire them is on the used market uh and they don't pop up very often and when they do they're they're sold almost immediately because there's a, a high demand for such a high quality eyepiece and how did they, did they pass muster? So far, so good. Yep. Yeah. They were quite fantastic. I, I compared the uh, five millimeter to a um, five millimeter Nikon ortho that I have, which actually Thomas Beck in before he released these monocentrics, uh, there's a little thread. Um, I think it was on, it doesn't matter where it was. It was on the internet. And uh, Thomas Beck said that the five millimeter Nikon ortho was the greatest five millimeter eyepiece he's ever looked through in terms of contrast and, yeah. you know, pulling out great detail. Um, so I, I compared the two. They both seemed identical to me um, in terms of, you know, the, I guess the detail and the contrast. Although what's funny is going from a monocentric to an ortho, which an ortho is not a wide field eyepiece. It's very narrow, mm. but it felt like a wide field eyepiece after using the, the super monos. It was kind of funny. Um, and then I compared the four millimeter super mono to a four millimeter Takahashi high ortho that I have, which is quite well renowned as well. Um, the Takahashi has a, a slight warm tone to it. I find um, but the high ortho is much more comfortable to use. It has more eye relief. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, it was, uh, it was a fun little test. I want to, I want to continue running some side by sides throughout the rest of the summer and hopefully get out on a, a few good nights of really good scene. I never thought, uh, I should have, uh, 
lent you the five millimeter 5.1 XO. Oh yeah. Yeah. That would be a fun one to throw into the mix too. Like, you know, those are three of the best five millimeter eyepieces. Yeah. I just, yeah. I feel actually bad about that now because, because we kind of swapped some, some gear off uh, yesterday and now I'm like, Oh, I should have, I should you know, I'm really just hanging on to that eyepiece just for, yeah, just because every once in a while I, I don't want to use my glasses or look for something particular. But uh, but again, my astigmatism is so bad that I need to wear the glasses when I observe. And these are glasses off kind of eyepieces. So so yeah, just uh, next time we're doing uh, gear smock or whatever, I'll uh, you know just you can just take that one for a while. Like I haven't used it in years anyway. I you know feel bad almost having it. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I'd love to do some side by sides with that one in the mix too. Yeah, cool. And so, yeah, just before we were uh, starting up, we uh, talked about um, you've you've taken the eighty millimeter um, off my hands for the time being, just as a as a bit of a I don't use, as, as an equipment exchange hostage or whatever, because <laughs> because that uh, telescope has really bad pinch optics, and we were discussing how. Uh, I, I didn't know if you'd had an opportunity to look through really bad pinch optics before, but that's a really common optical error in telescopes. And I was really eager to to get that into your hands so that you can see it. And then you were talking about getting a spanning wrench and, and maybe cracking it open and uh, and doing some some work to it. So I'll I'll get the thread from Claudia Knights and send that along to you. But I think it's fairly simple. The the lens cap or the dew shield just pulls off somehow but it's, it's sort of friction fit, but you'll see it's pretty tight. And I think that's the problem. So it may need to sit in the sun for a few hours, or it may need to go from the sun to the freezer or something like that um, and worry it off. And then uh, once that's off, the, there's like a retaining ring on top that just unthreads. And mm. so then they say to unthread it and then just give the side of the, the lens cell a pretty good whack and then, uh, and then just bring it snug down on top but they say typically what happens at the factory is they uh they just tighten it way down and then they jam the lens uh or the dew shield on and then of course this, this is what creates this uh this problem but like in in our tests apart from that the the glass seems really good like amazingly good for uh for an 80 millimeter in fact so i'd be careful. yeah if we can get it tuned up to get rid of those pinched optics, I think you'll have a, you know, probably the best telescope given, you know, the price you paid, you know, the, I don't think you could beat the the value there. Yeah. It was $99. So yeah. Brand, <laughs> and that's brand new too, right? That's not a used price. Or... Yeah, it was, it was brand new. Now it came with a few other things. I say it's a $99 telescope, but I think it was, I think it was like 129 or 139 Canadian or something like that. It wasn't very much. Um, and then of course, what I did is I, I pulled the, uh, it's always, it's always my inclination to pull a focuser up as soon as I get a telescope without ever looking through it. So I never looked through it. Um, maybe I looked through it once and then I pulled that focuser off and I went and bought a, uh, $150 two inch focuser for it to get those really ultra wide field of views. Um, like with your Nagular 31, since we observed together so much, it was pretty much going to be a telescope that I used just when hanging out with Shane anyway, because you sort of have the eyepiece for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that eyepiece works well in that telescope. Oh, yeah, it's it's amazing because it gives like, I think like six degrees of true field or something. It's it's a huge field of view. Yeah, that's incredible for an 80 millimeter. 
yeah so so anyway since uh, i don't even have that eyepiece anyway it's pretty much a dark sky telescope uh you know it's it's fine that uh it can it can live in your hands and whether you can do anything to it or not i'm going to also give you some of the flocking paper because i have all kinds of uh, uh flocking paper here as well so i'm actually just going to turn my camera on for a second i want to show you this so so uh can you see me now oh no wait yeah yep. like i'm like the mass <laughs> make the masked observer um so i got these so these are these are the prima lucha rings <laughs> oh so so chris is showing me the rings for his new takahashi telescope mounted to uh the vixen dovetail yeah very yeah. nice made by Lazmandy to make it more confusing but you know what's really hard to tell with these um and even in even here even when i'm chatting with you here they look super red yeah, they do look red. right. Yeah. They are yeah. not red. What are they? So in in all the photos and even even here live when I, I was just showing those to you, they like if you said they were another color other than red, you're you're not gonna believe. Me, but they're more like a purple. A purple. They look they look like Coca Cola red to me. They, it, <laughs> it is like I mean I I'm not. It doesn't really matter to me. I was kind of looking forward to having them. Uh, be super red um, and it's it doesn't really matter to me that much like I say it's you're using it in the dark anyway but uh, when I got them I'm like these are these are purple but but for whatever reason in like they're almost they almost like made them to look the way they look for photographs or something because in a photograph they always look red now maybe in a certain light they would look red but like I kind of have a, an empty Tylenol uh, bottle here and you know like the red of Tylenol is almost like like that kind of red is what they look like mm -hmm. but if you I wonder if I can I wonder if I can show you this because I have this here because you're familiar with like what a Tylenol color looks like you're still there yep okay so that's Tylenol okay so maybe you can see it here Oh yeah, yeah. So the the red cap on the Tylenol bottle looks identical. It's the same color as the rings, basically. Yeah. In real life, though, it's completely different. <laughs> it does not. This is not what it looks like. Bizarre. It is. It is the strangest thing. I think they look kind of neat, but I remember you were um, reluctant about these sort these these Prima Lucha rings because they. Uh, you thought it might look like really red, white, and blue or something like that. But, and, and, you know, I'd actually ordered the, the, they were called like the Patriot edition. They're in the States and they were at a couple of retailers and they were red and blue and they were on sale for like 30 or $40 off. And like I said, I'm more concerned about saving a buck than, than the color of these, these things. And I thought, well, that, that would sort of be unique. Um, and they wouldn't sell them. I think they were kind of a bust. They wouldn't sell them to me in the end. But, and I can see why, because if you made a set that was sort of a darker blue, boy, that would look really weird with these, I think anyway. Um, but yeah, they don't look, that's not what they look like. So I think, yeah, it's Interesting. not, they're not that red. I think they're, they're very attractive looking I, and they, they are very well designed so kind of once you feel and see the design of them you're like oh well kind of in a way like who cares what the color is anyhow but uh but they are really really well uh well built and they're small and they're very light so um i moved from the uh, takahashi 
clamshell uh, to these, and, and I'd borrow, uh, borrow the uh, clamshell from, from Mike. Um, but uh, I would say that these uh, rings and the dovetail weigh probably only about half or two thirds what the uh, what the clamshell alone weighs. And then of course I was putting the, the dovetail on that as well. So there there is a significant weight, weight savings by going in this direction for sure. Awesome. Yeah. I think, I, think, I think those will work well for you. Yeah. So now I did get out this week. Did you get, did you do any other observing this week? Uh, no, that was it. Um, yeah. yeah. So I was able to get out. I went out two nights. I did, did not set up any equipment because I wanted to see Mercury. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, Mercury is one of those very challenging uh, planets to see because it's so low on the horizon, sticks so close to the sun. And then this time of year, uh, where we live at 50 degrees north latitude, you're, you're having these uh, nights where it never gets fully dark. And of course, this is setting in the, in the, north, uh, in the northwest. So it's, it's just on the cusp of where the sky is going to be too bright to be able to see any stars or planets or anything. But I could see that it was just off that cusp. Now, the first night I went out, and it's funny, you were talking about using your planetarium software. Now, I hadn't done that the first night, and I went out and failed miserably because, you know, you have to kind of know exactly where to look when something's going to be threshold like that. And I kind of thought maybe it would stick out a little bit better than it did. So I went out, I think it was on uh, Monday or Tuesday, I guess Tuesday and went out and no luck at all. And it was a beautiful night. It was really, really clear. Um, no luck went out with my spouse and she couldn't find it either. And then, um, so the following night looked even better. It was going to be this awesome, super still and clear evening. And, uh, so I spent some time with the planetarium software, like you were talking about and really kind of nailed down where it would be. And we went out and it took, it took about 10 minutes to find it even once it was dark. And of course we have like the nearly full moon behind us and, uh, and that's not helping the situation, but we did track it down. Um, but boy, it was really, really tough to get really tough to get. So kind of wish I dragged a pair of uh, pocket binoculars with me, but I, I really don't have a pair of pocket binoculars right now. So anyhow, you didn't try for mercury this week, did you? No, no, I didn't. Um, can't remember why there was a reason maybe just well, laziness i'm not sure it's so low and it's so tough to see like so where i went to see it um is way out in in the fields by my house so we you know there's a conservation area and then at the end of the conservation area there's this big field and people seem to take their dogs up there and it's and it's open and it's fallow like they're not farming on it so i'm not like walking on a farmer's field which is, is always frowned upon um <coughs> so Anyway, we, we hiked up there and there's a bit of a hill and sort of like an ideal location and you're, you're fairly far away from any like house lights or street lights or anything like you're probably the better part of a kilometer away from the nearest outdoor light. Um, of course, you can see them on the road and cars and that going by in the distance. But um, when we walked up back uh, towards the, the subdivision, like we could find it, but I don't know that I would have found it, um, you know. Uh, without prior seeing it uh, sort of in, in a better in a better arrangement because once you're in town of course you got to dodge the trees and the the light poles and the houses and even where we are it's so flat and similar to where you are it, it's just still still pretty tough 
tough to get. So we did see it when we got back in, or at least I did, but my wife, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't quite pick it up from, from inside the subdivision. And, and of course it was like just between trees down the street kind of thing. It wasn't, wasn't really easy to see much at all. So anyway, so that, that was sort of my observing for the week. I did look at the moon through my binoculars a little bit, actually, just from, from the deck, we had some nice evenings. So we were sitting out and I was, uh, just reading and uh, had the binoculars there and they're kind of like bigger binoculars, like binoculars that I don't want to go for a, you know, half hour, 45 minute hike with. So I wasn't dragging those with me. Um, so anyway, that was sort of, uh, sort of my, my observing. So yeah, I'm pretty excited to try with that five millimeter. You dropped off the five millimeter Nikon with, uh, with those other parts. So I'm really excited to try that out. Uh, hopefully this week, if it's not too windy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see what you think of it. Yeah. Have you tried it out much or? Um, probably eight to 10 nights I've had it out. Okay. Um, so a little bit, but mostly just on the moon. Yeah. Um, cause I acquired this over the winter time, so there wasn't really any planets to observe. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I can't give a, you know, a, a full review of it yet, but it's very comfortable. That's for sure. From an eye relief, relief perspective. Yeah. I was talking to Stefan, uh, who's our, who's our, uh, dealer for astronomical goods and equipment. And, and he was, he was originally trying to steer me back towards the Pentax cause I'm, I'm in the market for a five millimeter. Um, and I'm going to buy the, uh, AZ GTI mount from him soon. He's got a couple stolen stock and, uh, on sale. It's, 30, 30 or 40 bucks off or something like that. So I think he put them on sale to tempt me because I, I said, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted a better deal than uh, whatever it was. And then suddenly I see that he's got, uh, he's got them off by, it might, might even be as much as $50, which is nice. Cause it kind of like basically gobbles up the tax uh, on it. Not that I mind paying the tax or whatever, but um, you know, it's nice to have a bit of a break and I, I think I'm going to buy the power cable with it. So I think between those two things, it will it will get me up to that minimum five hundred dollar Canadian order to to get the free shipping. So, I I kind of look forward to uh, to getting that. So, did you ever order your uh, Burla back tripod or? No, I'm struggling on the mount side because um, I want a new mount as well. Yeah, and uh, I want it just to be a manual alt as mount and. Ah, it's just, and I, I think I've stated before, I, I'm very sensitive to vibration. I just hate it. You know, when I focus my telescope, I don't want there to be shaking because it impacts your ability to get a nice crisp focus. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what path I'm going down. I'm looking at the disc mounts, uh, and I talked to Tom Peters for about an hour this last week. Okay. Um, they're great mounts, but, oh, they're so expensive. So. These are like the DM4, I think they are. I've never really seen one before, but I've heard. Yeah, there's the DM4 and the DM6. Um, so the the 4 is a 4-inch bearing, and then the 6 is a 6-inch bearing. Oh, wait, I've tried the 6. Um, oh, really? Yeah, Rudolf Dorner had one. He's the uh, patron for the Canadian Telescope Museum, and I, I believe that instrument is in the Canadian Telescope Museum now. Um but yeah, he, I believe he had the DM6 and he would mount all kinds of things to it. Like he had a pair of the, uh, oh, the Kawa, you know, fluorite 82 millimeters. And we used those one night with it. And then I think he even had like his refractor on it. Like he had the uh, TAC uh, 128 FS. 
Um, and we ran a comparison between that and my, and my Borg Pentax 125 SD. Um, yeah, so we did use that. And I recall there, there was two things about that, one very positive and one a little bit of a negative for me, I suppose. But um, the first is how dead it was. Like it just had no vibration. Yep. It was just the most, it was strange to observe with it because there was zero vibration through it. And the, you know, the TAC uh, 128 is not a, not a small piece of gear. I think it's around a dozen pounds or so anyway. Mm -hmm. yep. Uh, yep. At least uh, dressed up uh, probably even closer to 15 pounds. Cause my, I think my Borg is around 12 or 13 pounds once you get the big plates and the rings and diagonals and finders and do shield and all this business on it. You, you're really getting up there. So he's, he's got to have at least half again, the weight maybe. Um, yeah, it was super, super dead. So, um, which I found a little bit odd because it, it is, the other is it is substantial and you can't really change the height on it. So, you know, like once you set it up, I mean, it's set up, right. It's going to be, it's going to be at that height. I guess you could, you could change it a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't care for that aspect as much, but the deadening on it was, it's just like its own, it's, it's like its own thing. It's not like any other mount that I've ever used. So you kind well, of, it's very, yeah, it's very unique in design. Like just about every mount has tensioning knobs. Um, this one doesn't you, you adjust them like some kind of internal thing you adjust once for kind of your largest telescope or your heaviest telescope. And then that's it. You never touch it again. And when you take out, say a heavy eyepiece, uh, it won't nosedive. Apparently it just stays there. Um, you can put in a light eyepiece and you don't have to rebalance. Um, and what is bizarre about all of that is you can manually track a planet at 300 times quite easily. I guess, like there's no stiction, there's no backlash. It just, it just works the way it should, the way you would think a mount should work. And, yeah. uh, you know, nothing but glowing reviews uh, on the internet. But um, like I say, the, the, the only negative thing I can probably indicate about them based on what I've read is just they're expensive. So yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I want to spend that kind of money or not, because there's comparable mounts out there like a stellar view um, M is it M2C, I think is the latest one. Um, and then there's some European made mounts um, that compete as well. Um, so I've got some thinking to do. Yeah, I think like the DM, are you thinking of the DM4? Yeah, I would go with the DM4 because the DM6 is not really grab and, grow, grab and go. Like I think the DM6 mount is around 20 pounds. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you're probably adding a 15 to 20 pound tripod underneath it. And then you're throwing your gear on top of it. That's getting a little heavy. Um, whereas the DM4 is is you know very different in size, and you know it's it's definitely more of a grab and go. Yeah, I think I think his might have been the six. Um, I can't recall though. I'm pretty sure it was. It, it was substantial. Um, it was it was quite a quite a quite a big setup. So this this coming week, hopefully the winds uh, calm down. We're having some storms here today. Let's see the sun's. Uh, Kevin, we have some planetary pairings coming up on the 8th and 9th. Um, so are you going to try to get up and, and take a look at Jupiter, just two degrees north of the moon on the 8th? What I have to do, yeah, I would like to, but what I have to do first is make sure that it'll be high enough in the sky that the, the buildings around me won't obscure the view. Because oh, if I have yeah. to drive around to see it, eh, I'm probably not going to wake up. That's, that's the only 
thing that my property is good for is I have nearly perfect horizons and nearly perfectly bad light pollution and <laughs> like it's it's not it's not ideal in any other way but like if there's anything going on like this I can get it like it's oh, that's it's really gonna good. happen I think I lose maybe four or five degrees in a few directions um, I even have true south in one direction um, yeah but again like horrible worst light pollution situation uh, you can imagine and you know, back onto a road and yeah it's it's horrible for most things except for um, you know when the planets are up like if it's up pretty much can get it. even mercury the other night i might have been able to get it from the front maybe but uh yeah so anyway so on june 8th 9th we have the jupiter and moon two degree separation on the 8th and then the next morning saturn will be three degrees north of the moon and then on the 12th, which I think, when's the 12th? That's like uh, Saturday, I think. And uh, Mars is going to be, let's see, 12th is Friday. My apologies. Friday, yeah. So that's early Friday morning, very, very early, like just before sunrise on Friday. Mars is going to be 1.7 degrees south of Neptune. So there's a good opportunity. Now that is probably not going to be visible from, from your backyard. Um, it will be visible for mine. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to go for, it. I'm trying to get all the planets this month. Um, we'll see how that works out for me, but, uh, Mars on the 12th also reaches 10 arc minutes. So it's getting along there. It's going to be a pretty good size. Um, I was looking at that size and that should be large enough to see Certus Major. But, um, when I actually looked, uh, at, at my planetarium software, which I got to get into a better habit of doing as per your recommendation. Uh, but I did do that for this. And the Tharsis region is going to be visible uh, on Friday morning. So this is the area that oh. went through all this volcanism. And while you can't really directly see uh, the four giant volcanoes there, uh, one Olympus Mons is the largest volcano in our solar system. And it rises about 26 kilometers above the plains. Um, and nearly the size of France by square kilometer. But uh, once I was able to see like clouds in that sort of general area, and I think because, uh, you know, as the um, atmosphere goes up over the volcano, um, I think you get some, some cloud formation from, from time to time. And I, I did witness that in the past. And then the following uh, morning, the moon is gonna join uh, Mars and Neptune. But yeah, Mars is just 1.7 degrees south of Neptune. Uh, on the 12th and 13th, and then the 13th, uh, the moon is going to be uh, just to their, uh, you know, Mars is going to be three degrees north of the moon, so the moon's just going to be south of south of them then. So, yeah, anyway, so that should be uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, good luck, and uh, hopefully we have some good skies for it. Yeah, hopefully. Do you have any other uh, further thoughts on, on this or any other uh, topics? Yeah, so something else. So we've talked about June being not a great, time of the year to go out in search of dark skies because mm -hmm. of the perpetual twilight. Yeah. But what June represents is kind of the kickoff or the best time of the year to see noctilucent clouds. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, you mentioned that yeah. and I didn't put it in the script. Yeah, no worries, no worries. <laughs> not so, that we have that much of a script. No, no, not, not like we stick with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, so noctilucent clouds are a really interesting phenomena that anyone can observe and you just need your eyeballs. Uh, you and I have seen it a few times on our trips. Uh, yes, we have. We've seen it. To, actually, the only times I've ever seen it is with you. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So what, what they are. Um, so you, I guess maybe to qualify some things here, you're, if you're in the North, you're more likely to see it. It's usually latitudes between 50 degrees and 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. So if you're below that, it's probably not going to happen for you or certainly be more challenging. Uh, it only happens in the summer months and it happens during astronomical twilight. So this is when the sun has set. Um, so probably about an hour after sunset almost is, you know, astronomical twilight. And, um, what you do is you, you look to the North and what you may see if they're visible is it, it just looks like clouds, but they're illuminated even though there's no sun, like the sun has set, but yeah. there's illuminated clouds and what they are, or I guess there's a lot of uh, science that still needs to be done to determine how they're created. But essentially they're, they're clouds that are about 85 kilometers above the earth. So, you know, in the upper, upper atmosphere and they, even though the sun is set, these clouds are so high that they're able to catch some sunlight and reflect it back to earth. Uh, so it's kind of a neat thing because it's dark everywhere, but you see these glowing clouds in the north. And um, they're unpredictable. You'd really just have to kind of get out of the city um, and see if you can see them. Yeah. Now, I know a couple things about that. Because so the, the first time I saw them um, was I was flying right before we moved out here 10 years ago. Um, I, went, I went to France for a short while uh, with my spouse. She was working over there. And um, we saw the, I saw them on the flight over. I say I saw them because everybody on the plane was asleep. I don't really sleep on planes. And I was looking out the window and I just had it open a little crack because it was getting, it was a little bright. It was, it was in uh, July or June. So, you know, there, there's not much uh, uh, darkness and we were flying uh, north uh, from Ontario. And uh, I could start to see these white, white, bright neon white clouds. So I threw the, the, uh, the blind open on the window and the flight attendant came by and said, you know, Hey, sir, you know, can you please close up? I'm like, no, like I'm looking at these clouds. I wanted to see them my, you know, just but my whole life. So she kind of just rolled her eyes and walked away, uh, which is fine. Let me, let me be to stare at these clouds. Um, my understanding is they're actually formed by, um, when like meteorites, like little micrometeorites come into the atmosphere. And I guess like part of the uh, process there is a little bit of dust gets left behind. And then that sort of floats around in the upper atmosphere and gets coated with a little bit of uh, water and turns into a little bit of ice. And that's what causes them to have this really strange, unique uh, visual property because they do not look like any other clouds that I've seen before. So have you read that as well, that they're probably micrometeorite uh, debris that's kind of floating around our atmosphere? Well, I'm just on Wikipedia right now, and uh, let's see here. Recent studies suggest that increased atmospheric methane emissions produce additional water vapor mm. once the methane molecules reach the mesosphere, huh. creating or reinforcing existing noctilucent clouds. Mm. Um, and then it says a little further down here, there's no confirmed record of their observation existing before 1885. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It could be a, a recent phenomenon because they are very strange looking. And then the other thing, like you said, they're unpredictable. And just kind of reinforce that a bit. They do not behave like a regular cloud. They, uh, whereas like at least where we are, the vast majority of clouds will move uh, from the west to the east. So you're looking in the sky and most things are going to sort of move uh, left to right, more or less. Sometimes things will come from the north or the south or, you know, the odd time you can get winds that will blow things a certain way. But these are very high 
and it's very still. And typically when things are relatively still, things will generally move in this uh, west to east direction, like fair enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, but with these uh, noctilucent clouds, all the ones that I've seen, they're moving from east to west. And they're always pretty much more or less uh, due north. And sometimes they can be quite bright. I remember that time that uh, Peter was giving that talk down in the grasslands and he was up on the deck. And then when I went up to kind of thank him, I went, whoa. And then there was that huge display. I think you guys, somebody got photos of them and everything that night. It was uh, really something else. So cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really neat thing to see. So I really encourage anybody listening to this to uh, to give it a try. And you know, the other thing is, if you don't see them, that time of the day is one of the most peaceful time of the day. Or I can't talk today. One of the most peaceful times in the day. I just love being outside uh, outside of the city as the sun sets. Um, and then you know, if you get to see some noctilucent clouds, even better. Yeah. So and that's a good point. You know, like. It's one of those things, like, although we're trying to see, um, you know, different things in the nighttime sky, like, it's best not to get frustrated. I know sometimes people can get frustrated whether they're seeing or or not seeing things. And, uh, you know, like the other night when we were out and we were looking at or looking for uh, Mercury, um, the night we saw it, like, as it was getting dark, like, there were some clouds to the north, north, um, east right from the north to the northeast and they're really far away and it's very flat here and you could actually see like the sun kind of glowing in the north because we're in this perpetual twilight and they were going to be in that zone and so they were kind of uh, sort of being haloed by by the sun in the north it was really cool yeah yeah absolutely cool all right anything else to add Shane? that is all my friend all right well then without further ado i will stop the recording